good morning, everyone, uh, and welcome. My name is Jennifer Cook. I'm director of the African program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all here today. Uh, and before we begin, I'd, I'd really like to say a big, big thanks to Farha Tahir of the Africa program and, and Katie and, and the other CSIS volunteers who have worked so hard to make this happen. So Farha, thank you. Uh, let me say what a great pleasure and privilege it is to welcome our guest of today, uh, Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, Minister of Finance and Coordinating Minister of the Economy of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. I think Dr. Okonjo-Iweala needs very little introduction for me. Uh, unless you've been living incommunicado for the past <laughs> few months, uh, you'll know that the minister was much of the developing world's uh, and most certainly Africa's uh, top pick as candidate for the World Bank presidency. Now, we, we know the uh, immediate outcome of that election, and I think uh, we all want to work uh, with Dr. Jim Kim and the World Bank uh, to see that institution uh, successful in its work and its mission. Uh, but I think the much bigger outcome of these last few months um, and, and the minister's candidacy has been really to focus us all um, on the forces that I think ultimately are going to compel us to reevaluate the structures of global governance uh, to be relevant uh, in a changing world. So I think that has been all for the good. Uh, and when you have someone of the caliber, I think of the vision and forcefulness of personality, and I mean that in the best possible way, <laughs> um, as the embodiment of that debate, it, I think it makes it very hard for people to look away and ignore that bigger challenge. Uh, but let's look on the bright side. The World Bank's loss is Nigeria's gain. Uh, and it's not like the minister is going back to some humdrum day job. I'm sure many Nigerians and friends of Nigeria are celebrating your return. And there may be some uh, vested interests that are thinking they'd rather have you across the ocean in, in Washington. But happily, they're going to be sorely disappointed. So today, we're going to talk about Nigeria, uh, about the progress that's being made uh, and the big challenges that lie ahead. We all know about the complexity of Nigeria, uh, a country rich in natural resources, tremendous entrepreneurial energy, uh, but its potential really stifled by decades of malgovernance, corruption, uh, deeply entrenched interests, and a population, I think, that has seen very few benefits from the country's wealth. Now, we have at present a fairly contentious political context. It's exacerbated by vast disparities in wealth and made much more complicated and dangerous uh, by the domestic terror threat posed by Boko Haram. These issues are deeply troubling, uh, but as Assistant Secretary Carson said at CSIS a couple weeks ago, Nigeria is simply too big to be defined by its problems. There are real positive changes afoot uh, in a number of states and at the federal level, major reforms, banking sector, power deregulation, uh, pursuit of criminals who have really profiteered from institutional opacity and so forth. Uh, and Minister uh, Okonjo-Iweala has been one of the lead forces um, in, in that effort, I think, to finally unleash uh, the country's economic potential. So I think we'll hear today about some of the progress that we made, challenges ahead, uh, and how and if the reforms uh, are having traction, and I think importantly, if they're having immediate impact and resonance with ordinary Nigerians as well. Uh, and I think finally, in the long run, this is not just about Nigeria. I think if people like Minister Okonjo-Iweala, Governor Sanusi, and others in, in that economic team can begin to affect change in Nigeria, 
First, we can see Nigeria realize its potential as one of the breakout nations uh, with benefits to regional and global uh, economy. Uh, but also, I think it's a powerful demonstration effect for other would-be reformers uh, in Africa and beyond. So, Minister, welcome. Um, the floor is yours, and we're looking forward to your talk. Please join me in welcoming. Let me begin by thanking Jennifer for a brilliant introduction and CSIS for this uh, invitation. It's an honor and a pleasure to be among you, and especially since I also see some friends among the audience. Um, but I'm really uh, happy to, to be here and to seize the opportunity to talk about charting Africa, and particularly Nigeria's growth in an uncertain global environment. It's challenging times. But in, those, in, that, in these challenging times, Africa is doing relatively well. Africa embarked on a strong road to recovery in the aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis. Sub-Saharan Africa's GDP growth, which had recorded a healthy rate of 6.5% in 2007 and 5.1% in 2008, fell sharply to 2% in 2009. But the region rebounded in 2010 with GDP growing by 4.8%, one of the fastest recoveries following crisis. And this is particularly notable because Africa usually lags much longer in recoveries from these kinds of crises, but this time it was different. The World Bank forecasts a respectable increase in growth rate for sub-Saharan Africa's economy from an estimated 4.9% in 2011 to 5.3% in 2012 and to 56 by 2013, meaning that by 2015, Africa could recover its pre-crisis growth. I also want to emphasize that this trend of strong growth is a somewhat generalized phenomenon on the continent. Over a third of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa attained growth rates of at least 6% in 2011, with another 40% growing between 4 to 6%. However, the uncertainty in global growth makes Africa's growth vulnerable. Today, Sub-Saharan Africa is one of two regions expected to increase their GDP growth between 2011 and 2012, while world growth is forecast to slow from 4.1% in 2010 to 3.5% in 2012, before picking up again in 2013. Therefore, while Africa's fundamentals remain robust in many respects, with countries like Ghana, Ethiopia, Mozambique, Angola, and Nigeria continuing to grow, we cannot ignore the global uncertainties around us. And much of the discussion in the spring meetings of the IMF and the World Bank was around this global uncertainty. So let me then focus the talk on the growth challenges of Africa with a stronger focus on my own country, Nigeria, and what we're doing to manage in this uncertain global environment. Even as the threat of an imminent crisis in the Eurozone appears to be stabilizing somewhat, the current world economic environment is still filled with uncertainties. And if you listened and looked at the news today, you would see that uh, the Dutch 
are, are struggling with the need to imp implement fiscal consolidation, which the political environment uh, is not allowing them to, and their coalition is falling apart. So this shaking up in Europe now and again is quite destabilizing. From Spain, where uh, unemployment is over 24% now, with youth unemployment at 50%, to Greece, to Ireland, to Portugal, even to Italy, there are great uncertainties. And the key question that people are asking is, will they choose austerity over growth? Can the developed countries reignite growth by impl implementing contractionary fiscal policies? What kind of structural policies are needed to support accelerated and more inclusive growth in the developed countries? These questions are important, and they are much debated during the spring meetings because a failure to find a speedy and tidy solution to the Euro crisis could trigger another crisis of confidence and lead to more uncertainty and vulnerability in a number of ways. First, through trade. A severe crisis in high-income countries could put pressure on the balance of payments and incomes of countries heavily reliant on commodity exports and remittance flows, as we are in Africa. Oil and metals prices could fall by 24%, causing current account positions of some commodity exporting nations to deteriorate by 5% or more of GDP. The second half of 2011 already gave us a glimpse of how severe and how broad-based the contraction could be. As a result of falling global demand, for example, metal and mineral exporters Zambia and Niger and cotton exporters like Benin and Burkina Faso saw their export values fall at a seasonally adjusted rate of 35.4% and 37% respectively. In Nigeria, exports to the Eurozone and the US are about 60% of our total exports and 20% of GDP. A contraction in demand would further weaken, could further weaken our external position. What about remittances? It is estimated that a severe crisis could cause remittances to developing countries to decline by 6.3%, 6 a particular burden for the 24 countries, some, many of them African countries, including Nigeria, where re remittances represent up to 10% or more of GDP. Foreign direct investment and net capital flows. How about that? Capital flows to developing countries weakened sharply. Investors withdrew substantial sums from developing country markets in the second half of 2011. Overall, emerging market equity funds concluded 2011 with about $48 billion in net outflows, compared with a net inflow of $97 billion in 2010. Overall, capital flows to sub-Saharan Africa rose by $8 billion in 2011 to $48.2 billion, and FDI, which accounts for about 77% of all capital flows to the region, contributed to about 83% of the increase. However, excluding FBI net capital flows to the region uh, have suffered from the same declines observed in other emerging markets. Net portfolio equity flows to sub-Saharan Africa, which are short-term in nature, fell by about 50% in 2011. The decline in short-term financing instruments was mostly limited to the deeper financial markets in the region, South Africa, Kenya, and Nigeria. 
After the crisis in the Eurozone, another important source of vulnerability for Africa and Nigeria in particular is the evolution of the Chinese economy and the new direction set forth by the ruling party after the upcoming political transition. China's economic growth in 2012 is expected at 8.2% and forecast at 8.8 for 2013, below the 10.4% growth recorded in 2010. China and other emerging markets have become systemic as an important source of growth for the continent, especially for the resource-rich countries. A slowdown in China will have important consequences for the whole world, but particularly also for African exporters. The third source of vulnerability is on the food front. Despite recent price declines, real prices of food remained 23.9% higher in 2011 than 2010. Alongside this, severe localized food shortages persist, notably in the Horn of Africa, where crop failure and famine threatened the livelihoods of over 13 million people. While substantial progress has been made since the 2008 food crisis, food insecurity remains an important problem for many countries. In Mauritania, Chad, Niger, and Gambia, for example, total grain production in 2011 dropped by over 25%, with Chad and Mauritania record recording decreases of over 50% in production compared to last year. In the Horn of Africa, crop failures and farming threatened the livelihoods of over 13 million people. Another related source of vulnerability is social unrest and insecurity. Increasingly, countries or regions where citizens feel they are disengaged from the state and where governance is weak are witnessing increased social unrest. The turmoil of the Arab Spring and rising food and fuel prices have, <clears throat> have had a number of unforeseen consequences on peace and stability in the region. First, the unrest in the Middle East has in some instant instances resulted in a proliferation of weapons on the African continent in sub-Saharan Africa. A leadership vacuum and the strengthening or resurgence of terrorists and other affiliated groups. In some countries, these groups have used the rising food prices, slowdown of the economy, and increased unemployment as a way of fueling unrest. We have seen the pirate attacks in Kenya, the recent unrest in Mali and conflict in the Sudan, not to talk of Guinea-Bissau. In Nigeria, the resurgence of Boko Haram is part of this phenomenon. This group of militants believe that Muslims should not take part in any political or social activity associated with Western society and have caused some severe destruction, first amongst the government and, and police forces and increasingly with the civilian population. But this latter move has also lost them the apathy or tacit support they may have had from the population. Once they started to attack innocent people, the community was no longer with them. So going forward as policymakers, the only certainty we have is that the external environment will remain uncertain and volatility will continue. So our certainty is uncertainty. What, what, what does this mean for policymakers and for Nigeria in particular? First, 
Given that global financial instability is at the root of problems, we must make sure we put in place policies to protect our economies from any volatility stemming from global capital movements. This means, first of all, putting in place a strong macroeconomic framework, which ensures that our borrowing requirements are on the conservative side, particularly domestic debt, regardless of the pressures of filling the finance gap by raising debt. Let me use this opportunity to sound a note of warning to African countries that have recently discovered natural resources that can generate huge uh, gains. These countries must not mortgage the future of their economy by taking on large amounts of debt, however cheap, in view of their future income. They must learn from Nigeria's experiences, whose external debt rose astronomically on the back of the oil boom, from less than $1 billion in 1970 to $19 billion by 1985. There were certainly many people hawking loans and getting the government to get itself into unsustainable, into an unsustainable debt situation, which we had to deal with, as many of you know, so a couple of decades later, in 2004, 2006, during my first time in office. So I ask those countries who are jubilating over the discovery of these resources to make a little quiet trip to Nigeria first for some South-South learning on how to manage these kinds of resource booms. We need to actively manage our financial system to limit its vulnerability to global shocks. Over the last three years, Nigeria has done a lot to improve the financial sector. And um, I don't know if the governor is here, but a lot of credit is due to him for the work he's done, governor of the central bank. All of our 24 banks are now fully capitalized, with non-performing loans swelling from around 15% during the banking crisis to less than 5% today. We are now making efforts to strengthen the prudential and regulatory framework of the sector. We are also putting together a robust monetary policy framework that will increase the stability and competitiveness of the Naira. But managing and protecting the financial sector from global uncertainty and volatility will not suffice. While our economy has grown at a respectable 7% on average over the last five years, few jobs have been created for the 1.8 million new entrants into the active labor market each year. Our unemployment rate is now 23.9%, and youth unemployment is much higher in the mid-30s and underemployment is a serious phenomenon. Nigeria needs to attract private sector investment to create jobs. This is the priority agenda of the Good Love Jonathan government, and our fiscal policy agenda has to reflect this. However, fiscal positions in de developing countries have deteriorated markedly since 2008. In particular, government balances have fallen by two or more percentage points of GDP, in almost 44% of developing countries in 2012. As a result, developing countries have much less fiscal space available to respond to a new crisis, another topic much discussed during these meetings. To a large extent, the reduced fiscal space reflects the fact that in 2007, many countries were at the peak of a cyclical boom that had boosted fiscal revenues among normal, above normal rates. 
As a result, fiscal deficits were smaller by about 2% of GDP than they would have been had activity been in line with underlying potential. Now, most developing countries are much closer to normal levels of, of output, and this cyclical windfall has disappeared. Nigeria, like many developing countries, does not have the fiscal policy space that it had in 2008 before the crisis. We used up much of that space to put in place counter-cyclical fiscal policies to mitigate the adverse effects of the food, fuel, and financial crisis. And of course, I'm somebody really proud of this because Nigeria's history, economic history, if you trace it by charts and graphs, is one of tremendous volatility with consequences on GDP growth, which was also highly volatile and highly unstable. When there were booms in oil prices, the government spent everything to the maximum. When oil prices fell, the spending contracted, sometimes to levels where even salaries could not be sustained. This pattern of public expenditure was not sustainable or acceptable if this country was to move forward. And in 2004, we put in a mechanism called an oil price-based fiscal rule, which delinked the price at which the budget was set, the oil price, from the prevailing uh, medium to long-term um, um, uh, world price. This allowed a cushion to build up if prices were high and the idea was that this buffer could then be used to maintain expenditures or stimulate the economy during hard times. This is what happened in 2008, and the mechanism worked exactly as it was supposed to work. However, after 2008, the expansionary fiscal stance continued into 2009 and 2010, and this is what must now be reined in so that we can build up new savings in the budget, make expenditures more efficient, and control the size of public debt. The 2012 budget approved by our parliament is one that I'm really proud of. And I want to hear say the DG budget, who is in the audience, work particularly hard with the rest of the team for us to get a good outcome. It's a budget of fiscal consolidation that has put us on a prudent fiscal path with a number of bold measures. The government has implemented partial withdrawal of subsidy. I think our subsidy saga was played out on CNN for the entire world to see. And I want to say a word here because people do not understand. I often hear people saying, well, why didn't they do it gradually? Why did it have to be a one shot? And I think you've got a number of Nigerian policymakers here and the ambassador and others who can tell you, first, a collective decision was made among the state governors, the economic team, the president, that based on our past history, any increase, even of 10 naira or 20 naira, would bring people out on the streets because Nigeria just does not accept, Nigerians do not accept any increases in this subsidy at all. Because of the low level of trust between the people and the government, anything they would do would be very contentious. So a decision was made that you're going to get people on the streets, whether it's 10 naira, 20 naira, and that it should be done in one fell swoop because you would get the same grief, no matter how much you, you did it. 
And this was a collective decision of state governors at the federal level, the economic team, and the president. And you know, when you do policy, you have to do it based on the peculiarities of your country. So rightly or wrongly, this was what was decided based on our past history. So we did it. And as we expected, these people were out on the streets. And it was good. When I say this, sometimes people are surprised. What was good about it? Because what civil society came out and demanded more accountability and the opening up of the petroleum accounts, much more than they had been. We had already opened up the budget. As you know, I used to publish revenues at each tier of government in the papers. Well, they demanded more accountability and more openness of the whole subsidy regime. But it took a little bit of a different turn when the matter was taken over from labor and CSOs and suddenly entered into the hands of the opposition. Because now you saw people on the streets with sporting t-shirts, and uh, there were musicians that were put, the best musicians in Nigeria were playing for free, and people were receiving a small daily stipend and a free meal. Now, if you are un unemployed and you're offered a free meal, the best music in the country, and uh, a nice T-shirt, I would be out too, <laughs> to be honest with you. I would be, and that's what happened. And so we had the stretching out of this thing, and it got a little bit out of control. But were Nigerians right to protest? Of course they were. It's a democracy. People who have a right to express their views, and we knew they would. We just didn't bargain for the free food. <laughs> but in response to this, the president listened, we met, and rolled back part of the subsidy but nevertheless regarded it as a large success. And that is because for five years, no government had dared touch the subsidy. And this subsidy had grown. When I left government, the subsidy the first time in 2006, subsidy was about $2 billion, which we were already sounding the alarm that this was getting too large. By the time I came back, the subsidy was $11 billion. And mounting. And I remember the alarm with which we spoke about this when I saw what bills were coming in. As we all know now, quite a substantial amount of that was subsidy going elsewhere. And as we speak now, the government inquiry, the sorry, parliamentary inquiry into this is out in the open. And I think it will be important for Nigerians to see why it was vitally important that we try to do something about an unsustainable fiscal mechanism that was pulling the country's finances way down. But when you pull subsidies, you also don't do it without putting a cushion somewhere. And preparations were made for an effective safety net, which would be built with the savings made from the subsidy involving improvements in maternal and child mortality, involving public works programs, involving vocational training for the unemployed, involving investing 
in major infrastructure in the country. But I guess we were not able to make the voices heard on the fact that these programs had been designed and there was actually a cushion planned. And in any event, the level of trust being low, few Nigerians really believed that this would happen. So it was a very difficult situation in which you had to prove to Nigerians that this money will go to something valid that they could set their eyes on. But you couldn't prove it until you'd done it. So we were managing an extremely difficult situation. And I think that credibly, we brought something out of it, and Nigerian pub the Nigerian public also gained something out of it. So this is a very good lesson. They gained more accountability. They will gain even more as the revelations come out about who did what in the subsidy saga. And I hope we we'll use that to build on. And I think we gained a partial rollback. Saving $3 billion is nothing to sneeze at. Because that $3 billion, the savings is published monthly now in the papers for every Nigerian to see just how much has been saved each month. And then followed by, we will set up a social uh, type of matrix that people can tap into to see where the money is going. We've just discussed with the World Bank, helping us set up this system that can be interactive. People can go and see which projects, how much of that money has gone into it. But I'm happy to say that this budget of fiscal consolidation um, is a good one. It's the first time that the National Assembly has, it, it only increased the, the, the price at which we budgeted for oil by $2, from $70 to $72. This is a big triumph, given what has been happening in past years, where quantum increases were made and the budgets were made very expansionary. And they used part of that money to reduce the fiscal deficit and lower our domestic borrowing costs, which is a very good thing. We've also reprioritized government expenditure, managed to cut recurrent expenditure from 74.4% to 71.6% whilst raising capital expenditure. And I'm very proud of this because this, this is not easy to do. Our trajectory in the medium term is to bring down recurrent expenditure to the mid-60s. We are also ramping up efforts. Uh, we've cut our fiscal deficit. I mustn't uh, miss that. From 2.9% of GDP down to 285 and we are ramping up efforts to launch the Sovereign Wealth Fund, which will help buffer our economy from fiscal shocks, whilst providing funds for investment in infrastructure and boosting savings for future generations. Let me just take a moment to also just talk quickly about the structural reforms we are doing, because we've recorded significant achievement in the ports. After power, the sector that gets the next most thumbs down by Nigerian business and even consumers is the ports. I'm not sure many people know that. And as in many countries all over the world, you know, you tend to have very strong mafias around ports, don't you? I remember in the early 70s, the US fought its own ports battle just when I was arriving in this country. And the headlines were every day full of, full of what was happening in the ports, and it took quite a bit of fight to break up what was going on there. Well, we are doing our own battle now 
We have to do it because it significantly increased costs for businesses. It takes about 48 hours to clear goods in Kotonou and Togo next door. In Nigeria, it takes up to three weeks. And there are so many checkpoints along the way with government agencies, 15 of them in the ports. And the question is, what are they doing? So we had to fight this. And we've scored some successes. We've lowered the number of agencies down to seven. And we've been able to institute 24-hour uh, service in the ports. I think it was only Nigerian ports that I know in the world that work from nine to five. <laughs> Most other ports work 24 hours, don't they? So we put that back in. We got rid of several bureaucratic requirements and papers that were really money-making enterprises for some of those in government. But these were not easy. These people around this place, they don't just sit back. They now know about social media. So when you do something like this, what do they do? They hire a bunch of people to sit on the internet and throw false stories about you. They don't even need to threaten you anymore. They can just go on the internet and just blacken your name and invent all kinds of things. They don't just sit back. They take the pages of newspapers and invent false stories. And many Nigerians buy into this because they don't know what is happening. Then you see them on social media making all kinds of comments that are totally non-productive, I'm sorry to say, because they, they don't know what you're fighting. So I want to use a bit of this to educate people that if you want reform, in a country, you've got to be able to support the reformers. You cannot just take a back seat or join in the fun when the government is being sometimes wrongly attacked, sometimes rightly attacked, because the government makes mistakes, doesn't it? Or it's too slow, or it's not doing things right. And without that criticism, we would not improve. But sometimes it's not right. So questioning yourself about what is going on and getting a bit more informed. And we have to take responsibility making that information available. But you know, with the level of trust, anything government says, sometimes people just drown it out. They don't believe it. But I'm using this to just tell you that fighting to clean up something like the ports is one of the toughest things you could ever do. But now we have 24 hours daily work, sporadically, we have power challenges, so it's not perfect. So there are times you'll go and it's not open. But we'll, we'll get there. It's clearing of goods is going a little faster, not in every port. It's now down to seven days, sometimes in Apapa. Again, I say sometimes, you know, so we, we are moving. We've managed to clear overtime cargoes, 2008 out of 5,000 overtime containers. We have a phenomenon in Nigeria where people who, have, who want to do, I don't know how to put it, who don't want to obey the rules. Okay, how about that? <laughs> bring in goods. Or sometimes they bring in goods properly and they're being asked to pay a bribe of some sort and they refuse to collect the goods. So you have this cargo piling up in the ports 
causing congestion. We also have concessioned the ports, which is the right thing to do. But we have an oligopolistic structure. So the concessionaires, all of them big names like MES, they're not putting in enough investment. The whole idea was that they should invest money, we should have modern equipment, things would be faster. But guess what? Very little of that has happened. So we also have to fight the concessionaires in order to break up price fixing and speed up competition and improve the ports, and we're doing it. So I just dwelt on that a little bit because that's one area that people don't know about. You know, there's focus on power, on roads, but actually that's the number two thing that business people and Nigerians talk about when they go to clear their goods. We are also in the power sector moving. One of the things that has held ba back the power sector is the lack of cost-reflective tariffs. We are trying to privatize the sector, but nobody will come in to invest unless they know that when they invest and begin to generate and distribute power, they're going to get their money back and make some kind of profit. We have been on the path to these cost-reflective tariffs, but we, quite frankly, held them back. Because if you're rolling back subsidies and then the next thing you do is increase electricity prices and the third thing is Nigerians are going to say, these people, they must be nuts. So we held that back, but now we will have to do it because the power reform, the entire thing on the privatization is being held back. And we cannot improve the quality of power and electricity unless we do this and allow the private sector to come in. We've had three, over 300 expressions of interest from very reputable com com companies who want to uh, come into the power sector. Jeff Immelt of GE just visited Africa and Nigeria, and it was Nigeria he came to for the first time. And they signed, we just signed an MOU for GEs to generate 10,000 megawatts. I think that's a big sign of confidence. Let me move on quickly and just mention one or two other things. Um, we are investing in sectors like agriculture. We are going to look at housing and construction because we don't have a proper mortgage finance system. Just a few days ago, um, the ambassador, His Excellency here, held with our terrific Minister of Agriculture a work, uh, uh, investment forum. We've now got an agricultural plan that actually makes me ex so excited. We always used to talk agriculture before, but, but it never really took off in terms of how we were going to change it. For the first time, we've got a plan that looks at value chains. And it goes from research to adaptation to production to processing and marketing and looks at the entire value chain in a very sensible way. And it looks at smallholders as well as larger farmers and tries to connect the two. And it's taking value chains like rice. I mean, we spend $10 billion a year importing food, food that we could grow. We are the largest, second largest importer of rice in the world. We import fish, actually four products, rice, sugar, fish, and wheat and make up most of the money, seven billion. We are going to substitute wheat flour with cassava flour in bread. It's such an interesting thought when I think about how we're socializing to eating bread in boarding school. You know, something we don't grow and it made us perfect customers of some countries outside. <laughs> you know, so now you go to grow up 
And if poor people eat a lot of bread because it saves a lot of labor. But I, know, I don't think anyone ever reflected on how this was really impacting the country and socializing us into something different. In East Asia that is cited everywhere, so successful, what do they do have for breakfast? Rice. What do they have for lunch? What do they have for dinner? They just have it with different combinations and dishes. But you go to African countries. We used to have yam and akara and all that. But what do we have for, for, for colonialism brought us into wheat, which we don't grow. No comparative advantage. So we have to change all of that. If we are to become a strong country, there is no country in the world that is a world power that doesn't have a strong agriculture. And even Japan, that doesn't have a comparative advantage in growing many crops. What does it do? It protects a lot of its agriculture. People don't, don't say that. Even France, look at what they're putting in the EU into protecting agriculture. Because everybody understands that you cannot leave yourself completely vulnerable to the vicissitudes of price fluctuations and the thin markets of, for food elsewhere. In our own case, we actually have a strong comparative advantage in so many of these product lines, but we abandon them for oil. So what we are doing now is turning the clock back, investing massively in these areas to feed ourselves, but also to export. Again, just one fact that our minister will tell you. If we had maintained our market shares in cocoa, coffee, rubber, groundnuts, and a few of the things we used to have substantial market shares in 1960. If we had maintained them now, we would be earning $10 billion in exports. We need to regain all of that. And that is the objective of this government and create modern jobs in agriculture doing it. So these are a few thoughts. We have the housing and construction sector. I just want to say one word on that. We are going to be focusing on that very soon because we don't have a mortgage finance system that really works. If you're a Nigerian, just think about this in the US. If there were no places you could walk in and get some kind of a loan to buy a house, how would you feel? If you're, let's just take even the middle class. If you're working, earning a salary, what is the des desire of everybody in life? Is to have a roof over your head that you can call your own. But in many developing countries, you do not have a system that permits you to do that. You either have to save over your entire life until you retire, and then you quickly build something, or you, you don't have access. And I'm personally convinced that the lack of a mortgage finance system and the existence of the normal human desire to own something leads to a lot of corruption. Because then people take money and put aside any which way. Sometimes they are not corrupt. They just go on many trips, training trips abroad, if they're a civil servant, and put away as much as they can. But that's not right. We need to work on a system that allows honest working people access to a home. And we can do it and create lots of jobs along the way, because we know that this is one of the sectors that can actually create jobs. We just have to watch it so we don't get into a US-type situation. 
Lastly, let me just mention one or two other good things that we're looking at. We've actually done, not looking at. We've, to create jobs, we have launched a couple of programs. The president has launched this, and these programs are very dear to him. A program com, called UWIN, Youth Enterprise with Innovation, which is very, very fond of. This supports young entrepreneurs to create jobs and employ other young people. What is it? It's a business planning competition, quite new, the first time we've ever tried it in the country on such a large scale, designed to create 80,000 to 110,000 jobs over the next three years by getting young entrepreneurs to compete with, on business plans and then supporting those with the best to invest in their businesses. So we launched this and we had 24,000 applicants online. Everything was done online. And in some areas where they did not have good access, we got those people to universities close to them and had some professors involved to help them to get in and do the applications and so on, like in some of our Northeast states and so on. But 24,000 young people and 500 of them were from the diaspora. We did not close it to just youths in Nigeria. We also left it open. So if you're a diaspora youth, we want you too, if you can come and create jobs. This, we weeded down. We did this with the help of Plymouth Business School in the UK for quality assurance, Pan-African University Business School in Lagos, DFID, the World Bank, helped us also. And we selected from the 24,000 a panel, objective panel of distinguished people. We did this down to 6,000. All the 6,000 were then given training in how to do a business plan. And this, when they finished, they submitted, and the final 1,200 were chosen, the best business plans. And the top six got presidential awards in addition. But what did they get? Anywhere from $10,000 to $100,000 equivalent to invest in their businesses, managed by banks to be disbursed to them over time according to benchmarks that they will have to meet. We also, by banking their prize money, we got the banks involved, so they now will have access to credit. We have a mentorship program with other entrepreneurs who have signed up to help mentor them. We have peer-to-peer -peer learning. And we have one more thing. Many of these people did not have registered businesses. So we opened up a one-day desk in the Corporate Affairs Commission and registered them. And guess what? They don't know it, but they're helping me expand the tax base. <laughs> so this is just an example of one of the things we are doing. And if we continue this, and we're able to master our security challenges, which we're also looking at with a combination, three-pronged approach, counterterrorism, political approach, and inclusion. Counterterrorism, we're working with a few countries that are helping us, and we believe it's having an impact now because the incidences are diminishing. Political, the president has said, is open if they want to talk, but nobody knows what they want up till now. And inclusion is targeting those areas because 
where the, they are based, because these are some of the poorest states in Nigeria with the poorest human development indicators with public work programs, social safety nets, and long-term job creation. When we combine all of these things we are doing, the structural reforms, the macroeconomic stability, the targeted programs, this is what we're trying to do to get this economy moving. And I strongly believe, hopping back to the beginning, the theme we are talking about, that it is this diversification of the economy, this combination of instruments to build resilience that is going to help Nigeria and Africa chart its way in an uncertain world. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Minister, um, for really excellent and very comprehensive um, look. We're going to open up for questions. We, we're going to go a little bit over the time. I've been told that the minister can stay till about 12:15. Um, um, so we have about half an hour for questions. 12:15 or 12? Uh, 12. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. We may go a few minutes over. Yeah. Then. Okay. Uh, five, because we five, did start late. Let's go 12:05. Oh, so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they did on the subsidies, too. <laughs> okay. So I'll open up for questions. One of the things, and you started, uh, you mentioned this in, in kind of the last few sentences there, um, addressing the disparity between a lot of the kind of growth and investment that's happening in the South and the North. And the, we, we know the human index. Uh, measurements, health, education, um, maternal and child health, you know, a whole education, a whole range of, of disparities, I think, between northern states and southern states. So you mentioned at the end kind of a little bit about that, but I wonder if you might say, is there a kind of a grand strategy there that is communicated not only to the north, but also to, to the country at large on, on kind of why you're, do, why you're doing that and if you're doing that? I don't know if you'd like to take a couple at a time, yeah, since why we're don't pressed we for do time. That? Yeah. Now, please Let's raise do. your hands high, because I can't see anything right here. Um, the lady in the second row, and then we'll go to the back. Oh, it's Bernadette. OK. Thank you for that very detailed presentation. We've all learned so much. It's great to see you back in Washington, Ngozi. My question basically is, Nigeria has been saddled with a, a, a bad reputation for investment, and I would like for you to tell potential investors what legal safeguards are presently in place in Nigeria and new incentives other than the abundance of natural resources which would bring them to your country. Thank you. Great. Uh, next, we'll take another. Now I was going to go, OK, then on the aisle there. <laughs> Hello, um, my name is Jamoke, Jamoke Balogun. And it has just been so great to see a woman that looks like me on the world stage. And so I guess I wanted to thank you for that. But I have two questions. The first one is, are there more plans to remove more subsidies, and when? And would that be better communicated next time? And then what about 2015? Are you thinking about running? Can you run? Sorry, Please. Again. Running in 
2015. Running for what? <laughs> of Nigeria. <laughs> okay, last one. Um, right, well, we in the center here. Hello. Yeah. Uh, David Throop, um, uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, it's good to see you again, thank, Minister. Thank you. Uh, and CSIS. Uh, my question is about uh, fiscal responsibility law. Uh, Nigeria passed one in 2007, and I'd be interested to learn a little more about the constellation of political and civil society forces that drove the introduction of that legislation. Uh, a number of states now have them, more than half, uh, but the last four years, of course, have been extremely difficult in terms of fiscal control. Uh, I wonder how effective the legislation was, uh, how battered it now looks, and what commitment there is now that we're emerging into a new period of growth uh, to uh, correct the errors and, and to retrench and, and once ensure uh, stricter fiscal management. Great, well that's a good set to begin <laughs> with. Well, uh, thank you very much. I'll try to be quick so we can get another round. Um, is Jennifer asked if there's a grand strategy on tackling uh, disparities. I'm not sure if I'll call it grand, and I don't think we've communicated it well, um, but we are determined. We know that the uh, issue of inclusion is a very difficult one uh, in our country, and you can see between parts of uh, the country, even in, in the south, even in the Niger Delta, where the oil comes from, there's a serious problem. You know, so it's not just in the north. Um, and we, we, we are tackling it in a number of ways. The inequality, I think, is also increasing. So whilst our per capita income is increasing, we are now in a lower middle income status of $1,453 or so. You, you, you dare not even tell it to Nigerians because of the disparities. Um, and I don't have the numbers for Ajini. Uh, so we, it's obvious we have to address this, and we are putting together a constellation of policies. We have already started. We, we are doing it. Well, have we communicated it? It's a very interesting thing, just as a grand strategy to do that. I, I, don't, I wouldn't say we have, and maybe that's something we need to, to weave and think about. How do we tell Nigerians that, look, all these programs are not just being done at random and in response to something, but they're really a concerted strategy designed to address this. I was thinking one of the things we should do is to start the result, you know, for people to start seeing some results of some of these programs, and then you can come out and talk. Because often in Nigeria, you communicate something and they just discount it because they don't believe you. But if you can actually point to where it's working, then you know people can see for themselves. Then you can begin. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd like to hear views about that. Um, bad reputation. Uh, the country gets a really bad rap, not least from its own citizens. <laughs> You know, it's one of the most shocking things to me, and because there are a lot of Nigerians here, I don't think you would ever hear an American stand up and disparage their country. 
the way that Nigerians do, or go online and unthinkingly tear their country apart. For what? I feel very strongly about it. I don't mind if you tear me apart, because I don't necessarily need, you know, if you don't like me or don't like the policies, that's fine. But your country should be something and it's very funny to me because Nigerians at the same time are also very patriotic people. It's a very weird mix. <coughs> Where if somebody outside attacks Nigeria as a country, you suddenly see Nigerians becoming very fierce. But the way, when they attack their own country, they do it viciously. And I must say to any one of you Nigerians here, when you see that online, don't just say, oh, Nigerians. Forget it. Go and tell whoever is making those comments in newspaper that they are wrong. You cannot communicate that to your, wrong, uh, to your own people. That's not freedom ex of expression. That's irresponsible expression of expression, whatever I'm saying. You can see everywhere. I wouldn't want to communicate to my children that their country is nothing, because Nigeria is something. And Nigeria is good. We've had bad policies and bad policy makers, but that is no reason for some of the stuff you see that is querulous. So bad reputation sometimes deserved, but it doesn't give room for you to even talk of what is improving. So we, we have to fight that by demonstrated actions like fighting corruption more openly and vigorously. But fighting corruption is not just arresting people and putting them in jail. It's a very strong part of it to demonstrate that impunity will not be allowed. And more of that must and has to be done. I hope hopefully over this oil subsidy, then we will see that. But it's also closing loopholes, removing regulations, opening up sectors where people are making money. So all of that, but to answer your question, I think that in the doing business, we have to go and look, because we now have an objective measure of Nigeria stands at 133 out of 183. We've improved a couple of spaces, but not much. So we need to look at some specific measures, but you know, the ranking is also according to specific measures. I believe that legally, um, it's, it's one of those countries where we have top flight lawyers, and. I know that people with redress to the courts have won. So I believe, I don't think the legal safe, safeguards are the thing. And, and um, incentives for specific sectors, we put in place uh, uh, some incentives. Some exist already, and I'll be happy to share with you. But even now, we put in new incentives in the, for some agricultural products just to and, um, entice people to come and, and invest. I'm not really sure if that's what investors, investors may be looking at the overall security in the country and with people like Jeff Immelt coming to Nigeria recently and signing an MOU for GE to do 10,000 megawatts of power. That's a powerful statement. With people like the Del Monte CEO coming in to see if they can invest. And I can go on and on. An American just invested in Taraba State, $40 million in, uh, to do an agricultural um, uh, a farm growing rice. Mm -hmm. So I think, we, we, I think you can see. Now, you know, rollback subsidies. <laughs> Will we do that, Jumoke asked? 
a very pertinent question. We are committed to continue this deregulation agenda. I don't know, I cannot give you time, and I'm just quoting what the government has said they'll do. Will there be better communications? I think we also have to demonstrate to Nigerians a few things on the ground so, and build up the trust so that they can see that this is not just taking money, that what is happening has a lot to do with corruption. You certainly don't want to be paying subsidies into corruption. But we've got to demonstrate safety nets, punishment for those who have done misdeeds, I think before we can move forward. Uh, but move forward, we will. <laughs> Am I thinking of running? <laughs> 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 Giving the track record in running for something just now, no. Oh. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just joking. This last one was great fun and was done at the instance of African, the African leaders. So it's not like I put myself forward. I was asked to go and do it, and I did. Um, so let me not answer that question. Most of the things I do, I ha they're not things I sit down and plan incidentally. You know, because if you leave me, I'll just be doing my job that I'm doing and trying to enjoy it and to be committed to it. Uh, so let's not get into that question because headlines, I don't know if there's media. <laughs> so the answer to that question is no comment. Fiscal responsibility law, what drove that? Um, it, it came about very quickly when we did uh, the, we put in place the oil price-based fiscal rule. It became apparent that you would need a law to underpin this. And really, that was what led to it, and we went, looked at uh, several countries that have practiced fiscal federalism, like Brazil, India, and so on, and then we, we adopted, we thought the Brazilian law was closest to what we would want to do, and we adapted it um, you know, to, to our own uh, circumstance. But after, and then we made the fiscal commission and all that. And it, it gives rules about how to budget, when to budget, transparency in budgeting. But it was much watered down, I'm afraid, um, after we left. Um, and mostly by taking out a lot pertaining to the states and leaving only for the federal government. And we are, we are budgeting and practicing what is in that law. But at the state level, it's variable. Some of them are doing it, some are not. And I think we need to be much more vigilant on that. Great, let's uh, take another round. We'll go to this side. Um, this one in, the, in the, uh, the far back, the lady. Thank you for your presentation, Dr. Ngozi. My question for you is, um, where is leverage in consideration as Nigeria plans its comprehensive you know, economic program? And um, considering that every sector in Nigeria, whether it's power, water, housing, et cetera, calls for significant technology that must be imported outside Nigeria and outside Africa. And um, as countries like the United States push for export markets, right? Do you see Nigeria, for example, in the gas to power market where, for example, GE is bringing in technology and creating new technology where you can partner today so the investment become probably cheaper for you in the future, you know? And also, um, how does the housing sector fit into that when I would imagine that, and I'm looking at just power sector at this point in time, 
the majority of the population of Nigerians live in Hausa country. Is okay. Hausa, the Hausa, northern Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that there's a big push for gas to power. Most of the gas is in the southern area. What sort of um, consideration has been taken for the infrastructure that will be needed to take the gas from south to north, even in the sake of keeping the country stable as you okay. develop? Thank you. Okay, there's a, we'll come forward. There's a, a question here. Irina Kibushkina, consultant on gender issues uh, and uh, um, journalist. Minister, thank you so much for such a deep analysis of economic and social problems of Africa and uh, Nigeria especially. My question about energy. Uh, energy in rural Africa, energy in uh, rural Nigeria, uh, how you evaluate what was done for the last 20 years? Do you think it was uh, big progress? And uh, what do you think about next decade? Can we uh, resolve this problem of uh, energy, uh, especially electricity in rural Africa for, uh, for the next decade? Thank you. Okay. Uh, on the okay. <laughs> That's one way to. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Ngozi Kamalu, and I work at the World Bank. And just want to thank you for coming here and having this discussion with us. I want to build on a point that you talked upon regarding uh, the fuel subsidy reforms going on in Nigeria. And I just want to ask you. Generally, what lessons do you think that the government of Nigeria can take from the partial fuel subsidy removal in January, um, particularly taking into account the public response, the immediate public response to that policy, and now with the release of the House of Representatives report on the extent and the cost of corruption in the fuel subsidy administration, what are the lessons the government can take from these two, these two um, occurrences in response to that policy and how those lessons can be implemented in policies going forward. Okay, the very last question will go right next to you. Thanks, my name is Marissa. I work at the Aspen Institute. I was wondering if you could comment on how you or the government views um, Nigeria's population growth, either, either as an opportunity or a challenge in relation to some of the other issues you've been discussing. Thank you. I have seen the New York Times article. No, yeah, it's a big one off. Yeah. Okay. What does it say? Well, it's, it's the population is growing very rapidly. <laughs> and uh, will, will there be the infrastructure, the services, the jobs um, to, to accommodate that major? population boom, focused on Nigeria, but it's a much, much broader Africa-wide issue. Okay, thank you. Um, the, uh, I think the, the question, I hope I understood it well on, on technology and uh, partnerships and whether we see opportunities or chances for that. Um, going uh, in, 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 the, in the various sectors in which we are looking for investment. Um, 
I think so. I think we, we, we do see great chances, uh, you know, for leapfrogging in technology um, in, in all of these sectors. Um, but we have to, to say that whatever is brought in, uh, one of the misfortunes we always have is, you know, you go into a particular uh, arrangement and you have the latest technology and then the training and the parts and what is needed you know, to keep that going and improve on it is often missing. So this time we're very, when we enter into arrangements, whether with GE or others, is either to encourage them, since we're a very large market, to actually come and set up assembly or manufacturing of whatever it is they're supplying, uh, you know, so that we can also learn from it and, and be able to sustain it. <clears throat> on the issue of gas to power, um, in the southern areas and the deficit, I think it's not only in the north that there's a deficit. I think also many parts of the south, power is a serious problem. And, uh, and gas infrastructure is very expensive. Actually, when I leave here, one of the first meetings where I'm going into is a meeting on gas <laughs> and gas infrastructure and how we are going to assure adequate supply to fuel the many power stations that are being built. Um, so this is something that, you know, there's a gas master plan, and whether this is still appropriate to the situation um, is something we are going to look at. But I don't think we should look at gas to solve every problem for every part of the country. I think we must look at alternative energy sources, because there are some places where you may not be able to reach with infrastructure. It will be too costly. You know, so even as we speak, looking at energy alternatives for small, some of the rural areas is something that is built into the Power Master Plan. And, uh, you know, we're very eager to explore small scale type of approaches that are also more climate, uh, that are as climate um, uh, friendly as, as gases. And I think this is one of the things, mini hydro schemes and uh, other alternative schemes like that, I think we should look into. Um, energy, it links into the energy in rural Africa. I'm not an energy expert, so I'm not sure I can give you an accurate evaluation of what has happened in energy in the past 20 years in Africa. That's a pretty big one. Um, but I, I hazarding a guess from looking at many countries. I'm, I don't think we've succeeded. Um, but, you know, I'm also wondering whether there are some countries that have succeeded in rural energy better than others, from which we can learn lessons. I'm sure the continent is not completely, you know, a, 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 a bad story everywhere. Certainly in Nigeria, I think we have a long way to go. We've not succeeded in the main. I can say that for my country on, on rural energy. Um, but it's uh, one of those we had many rural electricity schemes. And I think we just did not think of alternative energy uh, well enough. We now need to really build that into the way that we do business in the power sector. Lessons from partial subsidy removal. I, I thought I'd mentioned to some extent um, some of those uh, lessons that we had learned uh, from, from that, and not just from this episode. I think people should remember that every time subsidies have been touched in Nigeria, there have been demonstrations and lives have been lost. When I was in the last government uh, of President Obasanjo, a similar thing happened. When there was a partial increase 
in, 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 in the amount of, uh, sorry, partial removal in the amount of uh, subsidy. We also had demonstrations on the street and, uh, you know, similar incidents. Not today. This one it was much, I think, larger in a way in scope than them, but it was also, it was also uh, there. So we need to learn, the le but what lessons, you know, can you learn? I think, and also from the new report that has come up, the first lesson that we're learning is that this is probably not the best way to subsidize services for Nigerians. It's probably not the best way. We must find some other mode in which we can support the poor and most vulnerable in society and not have a generalized subsidy that goes is regressive in nature. So it's not that the poor do not benefit, but it's really regressive in the sense that the more well-off people benefit the most. That's point one. So is that really a system you want to encourage? The second point is, as you've seen, that a lot of it is ending up in corruption. Cannot have a growth of over 100% in subsidies, you know, from one year to the next. And then when you look into it, you find that, you know, maybe a lot of the oil never even was landed or was taken to neighboring countries or there was over-invoicing. And that being able to patrol and su supervise these huge importations on a daily basis is a challenge that I think any country, I mean, something countries would find challenging. That's why many opt not to have this because they couldn't cope with supervisors. I just found out we took a poll the other day at uh, when we were meeting with Christine Lagarde at the IMF, African finance ministers, to see how many have subsidies on fuel and how many do not. And it was about 50-50. Some countries don't have it at all. They just let everything, like Uganda. Of course, they get beat up by people saying no in another country, but they don't have it, and the country still functions. But about half the countries have these subsidies, and all the finance ministers who have these subsidies are in really poor shape because they are mounting fiscal burden that they are looking for ways and means. Now, Ghana has been able to put in place a system and to be able to even phase out without the Ghanaian population making much of a deal about it. But that's because there's probably more trust in Ghana between the government and its people. And over time, I think Nigerians feel fractured. So the lessons we are learning from this is, look, this is not a good instrument. We must find a new one, a better one. But to do that, we must convince the population that government will deliver something else real, deliver refineries in, in the country that will refine oil and sell. But those refineries will not come in place as long as People feel the investment cannot make because there's a subsidy they may not get. So it's a chicken and egg. We must build the proper safety nets that support the population so people can see that, poor, that they're getting something before we phase out. So these are some of these, the lessons um, that we can learn. But the biggest lesson, I think, is this thing, if we continue it, we will find increasingly ourselves unable to invest in roads, and that's what the Ghanaian finance minister said. When people realized that getting these subsidies means you cannot repair roads, you cannot build new ones, 
You can't do infrastructure. Nigerians have not made the connection. They think there's so much money, and because they believe there's so much corruption, they, don't, they are not willing to believe that they can't both have the subsidies and have the other. But what we see as we manage this budget is that it's not possible from the amount of money coming into the country to use 12, $11 billion on subsidies alone, the equivalent of the size of the capital budget for the federal government, and then expect the federal government to be, to be able to build that infrastructure. It's just not doable. I can see it. The challenge we have is to convince Nigerians to see it, and those are some of the lessons that we're learning. The last point is on Nigeria's population growth. Um, is it an opportunity or challenge? I'd love to read uh, the article. Um, I think it's both. Uh, it's both an opportunity and it's also a challenge. The opportunity is that if we invest in the young people coming, well, remember that in the developed countries, they have a different sort of problem, you know, which is that they have an aging population and the labor force is shrinking. And, you know, they will be needing young people, labor or new technology to help them do the, 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 the tasks that are to be done, whether it's in industry or in households or wherever. And the Japanese are inventing a lot of technology to take care of their business. I don't know if perfectly you can replace humans with machines, but they are trying. Absent that, there's an issue. Now, we have the opposite problem, and the same with the Arabs. If we invest in these youth with skills, I don't mean just education. Some of the educated people, quote unquote, are not marketable, they are not employable. So we are talking real skills that are good for the marketplace and entrepreneurship. This will be a demographic dividend for us. If we fail to invest, it will be a demographic nightmare. And it will result in the kinds of social and security phenomena which we have seen. So this issue of job creation for youth is an existential issue in my view. Not just in Nigeria, but actually across the globe. Job creation is key. So that's the, so you can see the challenge. I've just given you one side of the opportunity. If we get it right with skills, we reap a huge dividend in terms of productivity and contribution to the economy. And if we don't, we'll have a very tremendous challenge. And I think my last word on this is that globally, it's very funny, you know, we talk about freedom of movement of goods and capital, isn't it? But when you talk of movement of labor, this is a no-no, a subject that is so emotive and emotional. But there are imbalances on the labor side that are emerging worldwide. And if we were, if human beings were rational perfectly, you could have a win-win situation in which labor short countries could, you know, really benefit from those with young populations. And labor rich could also benefit with the transfer and remittances that could come from those who are working. It could work, but it's a very emotional issue that you, know, you cannot even broach in the WTO, so there you are. Thank you very much. Thank you.